Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Paul Silvera. We recorded this a few weeks ago in my home in Portland, Oregon. This episode is brought to you in part by the California Bluegrass Association Summer Music Camp. CBA Summer Music Camp takes place June 12th through the 15th at the beautiful Nevada County Fairgrounds in Grass Valley, California. Daily instrument-focused and elective classes, jams, square dances, and student and faculty concerts are attended outdoors among the pine trees. This year's faculty include string band The Onlys, John Reichman, Mike Compton, and Lori Lewis, among others. You can learn more about the camp and register online at cbacamp.com. Get Up in the Cool gets the occasional great sponsor like CBA, but it's primarily listener-funded. If you want to make sure I can keep this show going every week, go to patreon.com slash getupinthecool and sign up. One more thing before we get started, my old-time trio Tall Poppy String Band is going on an album release tour next week in the Pacific Northwest. We're hitting Lake Oswego, Bellingham, Port Townsend, Seattle, Olympia, Corvallis, and Eugene. Some of those shows are house shows and therefore RSVP only, so make sure to save your spot now. Check tallpoppystringband.com shows for details and links. See you on the road. Stick around afterwards and I'll tell you how to keep up with Paul Silvera, but first, here's our interview and jam. Enjoy. Thank you. 
that tune a lot. Whoo, so good. <laughs> Paul Silvera, welcome to Get Up in the Cool. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, uh, we've been trying to make this happen for a while, but between the pandemic and, I mean, a lot of it's just that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, but our, you're in town mm-hmm. and the stars aligned and you're here. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. Uh, I am familiar with you first and foremost as a square dance and contra as well, right? Actually, no. You just do square dance? Yeah, we could talk about that if you want. <laughs> let's let's talk about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I'm yeah, but all I've seen you do is is uh, square dance calling. Yeah. And um and I know that you've written a book about it and you want to teach people how to do it as well as to do it. Yeah. And uh and then square dances didn't happen for a while. <laughs> Yeah. For, for a good reason, but it sucked. And then you've been kind of doing other musical things, or those things have been floating to the surface. Maybe yeah. you've always been doing them. Uh, and most recently, I've been following you on uh, Banjo TikTok, <laughs> which is a lovely side of TikTok. Yeah, it's, it's one a, of the better sides of Yeah, TikTok. it's one of the better ones. <laughs> and uh, it's lovely to be there uh, with you in that side of TikTok. Yeah. And that toxic sensorious place yeah yeah but i i've um yeah i've been calling square dances for i I think that my first square dance i called will be 20 years ago oh my god in the fall um but i got into old time music kind of randomly i was interested in oldish music as when I was in my teens and 20s but kind of very randomly Can, can we can we zoom in on that for a second yeah why so Stereotypically, yeah, teens want to be listening to the the newer music <laughs> and not oldish music. And I'm curious what the motivation for you was to want to listen to oldish music. I was kind of ostentatiously eclectic, sure, <laughs> maybe even obnoxiously eclectic, <laughs> sure, as teenagers can be, sure. But I really like listening to lots of stuff and priding myself almost on listening to lots of stuff. Yeah, and you know, I I couldn't say what the real genesis was, but I, you know, at one point I had a cassette tape of like Masters of the Acoustic Blues compilation, yeah. and there was like, you know, Woody Guthrie was on there, Lead Lead Belly was on there, and I liked the sound, right? Yeah, and so I was kind of like. You know, what is this sound? What was the, what did music sound like before this? But it really was kind of idle. And then a couple things happened. I read a book about Pete Seeger, which had nothing to do with being interested in the banjo. Somebody was just like, oh, Pete Seeger, you know, and I knew who he was. And he's had, you know, quite a life of activism and music. And I was like, okay, yeah. I'll read about him. And so in that process, um, I just kind of got the idea of the banjo was like super fun. I was like, what is this kooky instrument that he played? And, and so, um, I ended up kind of getting a little bit fixated on the idea of the banjo and I ended up, and I got one from a pawn shop. I was not involved with any music community Hmm. at that point, but because I had one and I was kind of like reading about it. You still a teenager at the time? Well, at that point I was, I just turned 20 or 21 and I was, I just moved back to Portland and I was in Olympia for a couple of years. And, I saw my first old-time band at a punk concert. I saw an early iteration of the Government Issue Orchestra at, great, at Disjecta, a great old-time band, which was the secret society before it was a secret society, yeah. and it was when when it was a punk house. Yeah. People were living in it, and I saw that band, and I was like, "Oh, 
that sounds cool. And because they were doing like a regular happy hour gig, I just like fell into it. I was like, okay, I'll go to your shows. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, I'll try to learn some music. And then actually what happened was, is, you know, I'd been to maybe one or two dances that Bill Martin had been calling and Bill Martin was playing with them on and off. And I was at like a happy hour show and Bill was on, you know, on stage. It was just like a happy hour cafe show, but he was there and he's kind of saying like, oh, I wish other, I wish some of these young people would learn how to call square dances. And I didn't even pick up on it at that time, but Michael Ismario just kind of like leaned out from the, from the, you know, makeshift stage and said, Paul, you should learn to call square dances. And I was like, oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was just kind of that easy. It was like, yeah, okay. And it sounded like you were ready uh, to be inspired. I was primed. And yeah. maybe you were ready to, to just be given a direction to go. I think that's totally true. I mean, I remember as like an art nerd in high school, like I was like, oh, Dadaism, surrealism, yeah. filmmaking, experimental film, like that was where I was at. And one of the things I was constantly interested in is how do you engage people? Like, how do you engage an audience to like really participate in art? Yeah. And I was thinking along these like new and experimental lines. Right. But then I was like, oh, participatory music and square dancing People have been engaging with their musical culture, with, yeah. with culture for generations that it fit, right? And so... I like that you went from, I can't necessarily speak to Dada or things <laughs> of that nature, but um, it's, it sounds like you went, f like, like there's a part of you that wanted to maybe differentiate by listening to, to things that aren't in a main, the mainstream yeah. or one of the mainstreams. Totally. Uh, and you were thinking about engaging with art in ways that were potentially um, provocative or offensive to the sensibilities, maybe in <laughs> yeah, some way. Yeah. Um, not that Dadaism is necessarily like um, gross, but it's just like, what am I look? What is going on here? Yeah, you know, totally. And I love that you took this, that, that you saw a connection between like in, in the engagement that maybe comes from potential alienation, but you can't look away. And you w took this almost like a 180 to square dancing because you saw yeah. a similarity, a similar communal function happening. Yeah. Which I've never heard anyone try to make a connection between those two <laughs> things before. Uh, but I love that. Well, I think it's related to, I mean, the old time scene at that time, like 20 years ago was totally intertwined with the punk scene. Yeah. Cause you had like the Dickel brothers who are all punk oriented and Michael is Mario, who was a big organizer and influence on the scene at that time. And he had come out of the punk rock scene. And so there's something about that idea, even though there's the expression is quite different. There's something about the idea of immediate engagement, right? Yeah. Like the idea of punk was, uh, let's throw a, let's throw a show at our house. Let's throw a basement show. I'm going to get up in your face. And so some of punk rock was like kind of agitating, but sure. it was also about like striving for some kind of connection. And so I think there was a total connection between what brought people to old time music at that time in this scene made total sense with yeah. the overlap of punk. Cool. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah. The, the punk old time kind of, pipeline has been discussed a lot on the show, but maybe also not. You're giving me interview gold right now. Let's play another tune <laughs> yeah. and then let's get into, I want to talk about Bill Martin, Bubba himself, yeah. because I feel like there's still more stories out there about him. And I want to know more about the Portland old time community and how it 
yeah. started or how it grew. And yeah, let's do another tune first. Though. Let's do a tune. Let's do um, let's do Sugar Hill. Yeah, great. And I do I do kind of like the uh, round peakish style. I don't use the minor chord. Okay, great. Yeah, great. Uh, what should I? What, what do you want me to play? What are you feeling? I'm gonna I'm gonna sing some of the verses. I don't know if that makes a difference on what you might pick, but maybe maybe, maybe I'll do guitar. a guitar for this one. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Sugar Hill. Um, known that there was more story in that possum situation <laughs> and assumed that the repeating words wouldn't happen there. I know. A part of me was, I, I wouldn't have, I didn't, I usually wouldn't throw that in in a situation where someone was singing with me, but it just kind of spilled out. And I was like, oh, well, 
I'll go with it. That's why this is a jam show and we're not cutting the yeah. record. <laughs> I love singing tunes. They're one of my favorite, like, like I've, you know, occasionally I'll lead jams up in Vancouver and really what I do, because for the banjo too, like leading a jam is, is a, it has its issues. Sure. <laughs> leading a tune with a banjo, but um, I love leading singing jams. I love, I love the tunes that have like the yeah. chorus and everyone can just kind of like barroom chorus on, yeah. on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you're right. That is a great way to lead from the banjo because your voice can kind of be the fiddle Yeah, and can call attention to itself in a way that is really clear because it is hard to learn from the banjo, learn melodies from the banjo because you're hearing rhythm, harmony, and melody kind of all at the same time <laughs> yeah. in, in a way that I think is a little harder to pick up on than a fiddle. Yeah. Even if you're a good player. And then also, yeah. like, I am not an expert melody player on the banjo by any stretch. So I I really stay in that rhythm, melody place. Yeah. So I'm very... I'm, I recognize that I'm limited in what kind of tunes that I could successfully lead from the banjo. And singing tunes are one of the ones that I, I can pull off a lot better than others. That's a great strategy. Maybe more banjo players who want to take a leading role should should uh, think about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have some, have some songs that you can sing. People get stoked when there's like a whole jam of people uh, screaming, want to get your eyes knocked out. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a, an arresting yeah. uh, sensory experience <laughs> as, as well as an image. Uh, that one's great. Uh, yeah. Who needs Angeline the Baker when you got Sugar Hill? It's, yeah. it's kind of the same song, but better. I think so. Well, I mean, Angeline's nice. It's also problematic, right? Like it's, it's, it squarely comes from that minstrel repertoire. So you know, and people have their own relationship. Right. And some people, so, you know, anybody who's making a choice, a conscious choice about what they're doing with that repertoire, I may or may not agree, but I'm willing to allow them that choice. You know, and what I would avoid is just like playing something is that, you know, is from a minstrel repertoire, but being yeah. like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I used to avoid playing it. Uh, but then I, this is a total tangent cause I want to talk about Bill Martin, but, um, I went on the, like, internet music, like, the IMSLP. I forget what it stands for. It's, like, sheet, it's a sheet music oh, database, okay. and, and they have everything that's um, public access on there. Yeah. Like, old manuscripts of Bach or whatever. And it hadn't occurred to me that there's minstrel stuff on there, but of course there is. Yeah. You know, because it's all public access. And it's, so I, I looked up the original sheet music of Angela and the Baker. I think it's almost unrecognizable it's so different huh i do not and i would love for someone to write in and explain what happened uh because the melody is almost completely unrecognizable except for the one spot where it goes da 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 uh da 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 but every tune does that and then every other aspect of the tune is completely different and then so i don't know how to like and then the the lyrics people sing are like you know covertly racist, and they'll but they'll put it over the new fiddle tune version that has nothing to do with the Stephen Foster. Oh, interesting! It's such a big mess, and I don't yeah. and I want someone to explain why we call that fiddle tune Angeline the Baker mm -hmm. um, when it when if you actually go and listen to the original 
it's, in my opinion, unrecognizable. Yeah. Well, also talking about singing tunes, right? So many of the singing tunes come from that minstrel, minstrel yeah. repertoire. And the thing that's really interesting to me is that when people have sanitized these minstrel tunes, yeah. you know, either with, you know, the best of intentions or whatever, yeah. but... Interdental fricatives, like <laughs> THs. Yeah. Yeah. But as people have, like, sanitized, like, you know, like, racist epithets out of it, you're left with these fairly lovely tunes with fun wording and fun, you know what I mean? And so it's right. like, if you can convey a fun tune yeah. with, you know, like, there's nothing left in the lyric, in some of them, in right. some of these tunes, if you just remove the racist epithet name of who's doing the thing in the song, right? you're left with something really fun. And again, like right now, the place that I'm at, I'm not going to just jump back in and sing those songs. Right. But it does occur to me, like, are, you know, do we lose, what do we lose if we write off these songs? And I also had this one sort of like revelation too, when I started to realize, you know, what should be obvious, but what wasn't really obvious is how many black performers after a while were performing in the minstrel tradition because, because that was what was available but then you're also like, oh, by erasing the bad parts of minstrelsy, you also kind of erase yep. the re-empowering parts for some musicians who are able right. to express in some, some contexts with some types of yeah. conditional consent happening. Yeah. So it's a mess. Yeah. So for me, like I'll step away from them, but I'm quite curious what other people are doing with them right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, just because some things maybe controversial right now maybe if <laughs> maybe if certain kinds of trust are built maybe and, and permissions are given mm-hmm. maybe certain things will be less inflammatory yeah i don't know i mean i i think there will be certain things that that won't <laughs> make it out of that hole yeah but you know i i totally agree because there's i mean like that tune um i don't know if it's actually a minstrel tune but um yellow barber Mm. um we don't use that word anymore uh for for that purpose um but it's talking about i guess like a real barber like a real mixed race barber named i think arthur barry is that his name and so some people have started calling it if that's actually his name calling it that because it's like this is about this person but then you, you run into the same problem it's like uh am i erasing Am I erasing a, you know, right? Like a, a cool part of the uh, part of the tune, which is someone felt compelled to write a tune in honor of this barber who must have given them a, a great haircut or something, <laughs> or who they thought was worthy of a tune. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Bill Martin. Bill Martin. When did you uh, t- tell me more about the scene at the time? Bill Martin was saying, "I wish people more." people called square dances. Yeah. How many other people were calling square dances at the time in Portland? And well, nobody. Yeah. As far as I know. So I came on the scene in about 2001, 2002. And, um, and so shortly before I got there, the Dickel brothers had started doing their thing. Foghorn had started doing their thing. So there was, there was a bedrock laid. And so Bill Martin saw these people playing music and thought, let's introduce dancing. What I didn't realize at the time is that Bill had been a long time, you know, old time folk bluegrass musician and had called a lot of contra dances, but was sort of rediscovering square dancing. 
So he was he saw this opportunity with old time bands to reintroduce square dancing and to kind of learn it himself. And at the time, of course, oh. I met him and, I, and it just kind of seemed like he'd been calling square dances forever. Yeah. And he'd been calling dances forever. But this whole contra versus square kind of thing, contras were big everywhere and squares were this little almost forgotten thing. So Bill started doing that. And um, yeah. And so he was he, there was a wave of interest because people were going to Foghorn shows. People were going to Dickel Brothers shows and he started doing dances and it started getting some attention and so he saw more happening and in his amazing way this is kind of is the kind of person that bill was he was like <laughs> it is sort of like bill chuckle he's like well i don't want to have to do them all <laughs> you know he, he wasn't proprietary yeah about like being the square dance caller in town so he was like let's like raise up a crop of callers and so the first step was a few of us got together and the first round was like me and caroline oakley yeah. And we learned from Bill very quickly after that. Uh, Maggie Lind and uh, Michael Ismario started learning from Bill as well. So, But we started learning, and Bill was just the best teacher. He would teach us what he knew. He'd give us chances to practice, and we would practice with bands because we'd be like, okay, let's go to Caleb Clowder's house, and we'll all you know practice in his living room or go to Caroline's house and we'll practice outside. And, uh, and then, you know, and he's learning at the same time. Well, yeah. I mean, he's an experienced dance caller, right? Picking up squares kind of, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in the experience where you're teaching something, you know, like, and, and you're, you're able to just pick it up a little bit faster than your student. (laughs) And so that was Bill, right? Like, as far as I know, somebody could correct me, but he was, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't quite and you know, he hadn't been calling squares for decades he was he was trying to rediscover them kind of with everybody else at the time but he would share the stage at shows and uh and you know eventually stop taking like direct instruction from him but you know just going to a square dance is an education in yeah. in what you can learn and bill was a type of person who had a philosophy he's like it's a party first and a dance second yeah. so because nobody knew how to square dance it was always like part of learning to call with bill was learning how to teach and Bill was always willing to modify what he did on the stage to facilitate people having fun on the floor. Yeah. And whether he, it meant that he just changed the program he had in mind or sometimes even just changing the dance in the middle of the dance because he knew something different needed to happen. Yeah. And so I've absolutely huh. picked that up from him. Yeah, just like reading the room and mm-hmm. uh, being flexible. Yeah. Sounds like a, he was a very hospitable person in a lot of like behind the scenes yeah like when the spotlight was on him and yeah i always i'm so interested in what i would go so far as to say is like a certain kind of brand of masculinity that i run into sometimes in the old time community Mm -hmm. which is the the hesitant um almost reluctant leader and Mm -hmm. it sounds like he he fully leaned into it but there's a part of him that's like I want everyone else to be doing this and someone needs to make that happen. So I'm going to make the culture mm-hmm. so that I can enjoy it. Um, I want it to be there. I don't want to be in charge, uh, but I'll do whatever I need to do to get the ball rolling. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's so, I think that's so interesting. I've met a fair amount of people who, you know, will start old time, you know, jams or communities 
who kind of fit that bill. It's just like, oh, this needs to happen. Yeah. It seems like I'm going to be the one to do it. <laughs> yeah. But it sounds like he was, like, pleasant about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but... Yeah. I mean, he was having fun doing it. Yeah. But, you know, he never had to be in charge of anything. Yeah. You know, like, if somebody else had the energy to go for it, <laughs> they could, you know, he wasn't going to stand in their way. I think that's really cool because, um, well, for one, I think that it's weird when people vie for social power in old time music, uh, because <laughs> it's old time music, <laughs> you know, like, what are you doing? Uh, but like, there is a way that, you know, he could be like, this is feeding my ego in a certain kind of way. And it sounds like he was, uh, basically egoless in his, and it was very driven by, uh, a desire for community and music to be happening for there to be a party. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true. I mean, Bill was a great player, but he wasn't an up, he like, but he wasn't, he didn't put himself out there to play a lot. Yeah. You know, he very rarely booked any gigs where he was playing. And most of the time when he played, he played with his brothers or with his wife, Nancy Martin. Like he wasn't, you know, so that, but he loved playing. So it's not like he, you know, called mostly and didn't play. He played all the time, but again, yeah, he just, you know, he had, he had what he wanted, which was the enjoyment of doing all these things and seeing it grow. I mean, I think that there's like, you know, how some some teachers can be really sort of like, they can be like egotized by your success. Sure. And Bill was more like, he loved seeing the scene grow just because it was fun. Yeah. And, you know, I think he knew that he had a role to play, but I don't think it really, yeah. you know. Anyway, it never came out that he was yeah. like, you know, f- you know, feeding some secret ego trip from it. Sure. <laughs> and, you know, I don't want to, like, moralize about it. I just more think that it's interesting. I'm, I love me a diva any day. I'm, I think that's great, too. <laughs> and there are ways to do, you know, to have, to manage both of those impulses that are, like, you know, that result in cool culture happening uh, yeah. or the opposite, you know. I, and I, I think a lot, especially in the old time community, I feel like it's really easy to sort of like realize, like there's sort of like different archetypal ways of engaging, you know, like when you're at a jam, you may not be the best player, but you could be that person who's always like inviting people in yep. and always being like, oh, that was cool. That thing you did. And that's like a role to play. Yeah. You know, you could be the person who's, you know, not on stage a lot, but you're the fiddler who always has the tunes to lead at a jam. Or, you know, one of Bill's things was he started putting out this old-time newsletter, which which really, the putting out the old-time newsletter in a lot of ways was the thing that grew into the organization that became, you know, there was the, there was the old-time gathering, yeah. which started, that was a lot of Michael Ismario's thing, but then there was Bill's newsletter, and that kind of coalesced into this organization of what has now become Bubbaville that kind of, like, helped steward all of those things. But yeah, Bill was like, look at all this great music going on, go see it. And he would, you know, he would, he had his things. I remember one time uh, Peggy Seeger came to town and he went to the show and afterwards he was like, I didn't see enough of you there. And so that's one of the things where it's like a lot of us in the old time community, because we love this participation so much, a lot of us, I think can be like, "Eh, someone's on stage like, right. you know, I, right. I don't know, like, Peggy, yeah, Peggy Seeger's great. Like, you know, she's iconic and had a huge influence, <laughs> but, well, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so Bill would take us to task sometimes and be yeah. like, you know, which, you, which also makes me why think. Why weren't you here to see feminist icon like Peggy Seeger? Yeah. Uh, guitar virtuoso Peggy yeah. Seeger, you know. 
Yeah. And so, you know, I think about different roles. Like sometimes the role is I'm going to kind of like somebody takes on the role of being an expert or a particular performer and then travels and tours. And, you know, if you're in the old time music scene, how there's tons of amazing players who don't get up and tour. Yeah. And, and so like you have this question of like, well, why does one person become like, you know, a mini star in the old time world? Like sure. And not, but I think that there's something really valid about people who've decided that what they're going to do is they're going to kind of be a focal point of collecting influence and sharing influence. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, thank God for the, the organizers of people. <laughs> I'm so impressed. Uh, and the people who enjoy doing it, like they're so, we just, we need, they're so needed, yeah. <laughs> you know, cause you, you know, cause it can sour at some point for people. And, um, but then, yeah, I just, yeah, I never got to meet him. I didn't get into playing old time music until, um, I moved away. I'm from here as well. Right. And then um, you were on the East coast yeah, for a while. Yeah. Philly. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, people, people love talking about his, his influence and the, the, the thing that he built here. And I just, yeah, I think it's so cool. I wish I knew what was going on at the time. <laughs> would have been lovely to participate in. Yeah. Let's, let's play another team play another and team. then let's, let's talk about maybe some more nitty gritty of calling and how, how you approach calling. Yeah. I'm into it. Let's do that. I got to do that earmark now because, uh, it's hard to think of questions right after a tune because uh, my interview <laughs> brain and my jam brain aren't always, um, yeah. they don't always cooperate. Yeah. What's next? Uh, what was I thinking of next? There's another singing tune or one that I sing, Cumberland Gap. Oh, yeah. Do you do the, the three-part? I do the three-parter. Cool. I'm a little bit funny with how I sing it because I actually sing on the B part. But yeah, it doesn't great. really matter. But cool. yeah. yeah, but the structure is the same. Yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do this again. All right, I'm ready when you are.
nailed that last one. That was great. Now that's an ending. <laughs> uh, I'm, yeah. What a great, great party tune. Mm-hmm. And I, I like how you lay the floating verses. Oh, I think thanks. that's really cool. Yeah, and, I don't uh, know why I did halfway that. Halfway through the A and then into the B. <laughs> I'm into that. Yeah. Yeah, I've never heard anybody sing those. I basically lifted the verses that people sing in the A part. Yeah. And, and I don't know why. I just decided I'd throw them on the B. But why not? Yeah. Arrangement. Yeah. <laughs> I decided to create an arrangement. Yeah. <laughs> so you started 20 years ago. You did your first square dance. Yeah. Will you tell us all how that first square dance went? Okay. And what you know now. <laughs> well, okay. It's a great story. My very first square dance was at a place called the Dirty Feet Warehouse, which was a punk warehouse in Se- South Seattle. Okay. Great name. And Bill was Bill Bill was game for anything. As I loved cuz you know, I mean he wasn't that old, but I was 20, so he was probably in his early 50s or something like that and so he seemed quite old to me at the time i've since learned better now that i'm 40 <laughs> but um but he was like sure i'll go to a warehouse in seattle and call square dance for all you crazy kids great and Love so that. yeah so he did so i called my first dance it was a very simple mixer and it was great and it's a, it's a rush right because it's, it's calling square dances is being at the focal point between the audience and the band yeah but at the same time, you can't do it without the band and you can't do it without the audience. Yeah. So that like you can be a focal point and kind of get all of that energy, but you also can't pretend it's all about you, yeah. you know? And so anyway, so it was really awesome. And, um, you know, it was this warehouse with pillars in the middle of it. And Bill called this dance called the bouquet waltz, which we all called the tilt a whirl. Cause it's basically like you get in these circles and you're like orbiting each other. Yeah. The circles are circling. And so Seattle punks are like smashing into columns and it's like, <laughs> but you know, Bill's just up there chuckling. He's like, okay, like go ahead, have a great time. And there was one, like one, you know, young hippie punks parents came out to the dance. Yeah. And so there was like one, like couple Bill, Bill's age also on the floor dancing. Yeah. But it was just, it was That's just really awesome. sweet. Yeah. I love that. And, uh, yeah. And so that was just the start the trajectory. And then, um, I remember my very first time getting paid for a dance. There were some old time folks that people knew out in enterprise, Oregon, and they were going to have a wedding and they wanted to have a square dance and they were looking for a caller. This idea of course had never crossed my mind that yeah. you could get paid for a square dance, sure. that someone would hire you to call a square dance at a wedding. You know, it was ridiculous. And I got paid $50. It was just like, <laughs> I feel like I'm, you know, so old, like $50, but it wasn't that much then either. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. But anyway, so, you know, things just started building and there was people wanted to do it and I wanted to do it. And so it was really fun. Um, and the scene in Portland grew for a lot of different reasons, but one of them was the Kennedy school square dance. So the Kennedy school thought for whatever reason that they were going to put on a community event and they put on this square dance where they paid Foghorn and bill some amount of money. I don't know if it was a lot. And then the dance was free. Yeah. And so cool. it was just like, like, why wouldn't you come to this free event? And it just built and this interest in square dancing. And so for quite a long time, 
after that in Portland, there was just a big wave of interest. And, uh, and, you know, Bill's attitude was a lot about that. And one of the things that I have realized, because we were talking earlier about like contras and squares, and you asked if I'd called con if I call contras and I don't, and it's not because I have anything against contras per se. There's a lot, there's, there's camps and there's a lot you could talk about there, but largely it's cause I just never had to. Yeah. I learned how to call square dances and there were a lot of people who were into it. And so I just kept going. But one of the things about square dancing versus contras is that the fact that the calling can be separated from the music yeah. gives a caller so much leeway. Because for instance, what I do and what I kind of learned from Bill, I will change the timing of my calling where I will take a lot more time to get through a call at the beginning of a dance yeah. And as people start to re learn what they're doing and get better at it, I'll shorten the timing of my calls until it's at its like optimum pacing. And you can't do that with a contra dance because you have to follow because the music and the calls are connected and you follow, you do a contra dance, you know, has is 32 bars or whatever. And, yeah. and you know, if you, you know, that's just how it is. Right. And that's totally great for people who like to do it that way. But square dancing gives you a different option. I've heard some, um, I guess, very salty, like old time musicians, square dancers, sort of refer to. Um, this is not me saying this. I'm not endorsing <laughs> this. Refer to uh, contra dancers as um, fascists. But 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 it, I guess it's because they're trying to do this very specific thing, yeah. which I would imagine would be really satisfying to do but also would require a certain amount of just like practical gatekeeping in order yeah. to make it happen. I remember I was at a contra dance in Philly and this young couple were on a date and one of them, they just appeared to be super drunk already at the start. Um, and the other wasn't, which is awkward. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, the, this person just, uh, totally derailed, you know, the lines. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, and that's what happens is that because contra dancing is super interconnected, yeah. you have to move down the conveyor belt yeah. that if you mess up, you actually do derail everybody else. And so there is some logic behind people wanting people to be able to follow exactly with yeah. the calls and the music. But just by the nature of it, it then develops this like unfriendly, this feeling of unfriendliness. Sure. And I think that contra dancers are totally friendly to new people. Yeah. But you got to know how to do the dance in order to get along in a contra dance. And you don't in a square dance. Right. Um, there is a, the, the pattern of the, the history, the growth of square dancing and contra dancing in the early part of like the 20th, well, in the early part of the 20th century, I think for squares and then kind of the later part of the 20th century for contras followed a similar trajectory where a lot of people desired complexity. They wanted the satisfaction of doing more complex dances yes. on the floor. And so that's where you got modern Western square dancing, which gives old time square dancing a bad rap because people associate the two and modern Western square dancing. That's where you go to your club. You learn all the moves, you advance in the level. Sure. And then by the end of it, you do these very complicated things. And Is that related to the square dancing that we learned in school? I think so. Yeah, because that, that type of square dancing came out of the modern... Those squares 
came out of the modern Western square dancing movement. Many of those squares, like even the modern Western square dancing community or movement recognized what they would call like folk squares or mountain squares. And so they would include a lot of the same type of stuff that I'll call, but they were really, they were acknowledged as, you know, historical, not curiosities might be a little dismissive, but but they were like, oh, these are like the fun little palate cleansers we might do in between the real squares that we want to do that are complicated and have the, lots of different positional movement. The set in stone, do not folk process these. Yeah. And then contra dancing is similar because contra dances, like modern Western square dances, have authors. You know, there's a big uh, importance on composing new dances. And part of that is about creating new levels of complexity for dancers who want to have the satisfaction of doing complicated dances. Yeah. And it's just not where my focus lies. Yeah. Where is your focus? Well, I love calling for beginners. You know, I guess, you know, if I, if I, you know, decide to like put a finger on my own ego trips and my own, you know, like personality foibles, I love the satisfaction of helping new people learn how to dance you know, and I, I get a lot of pride out of being that caller yeah. who can bring a bunch of people who have come because their friends dragged them there or because they thought it was kitschy and they weren't yeah. really, they didn't really bother whether they were going to do it well or not. They're just going to go check it out or whatever reason. I get a lot of pride out of being like, okay, I can walk these people through a process that by the end of it, they can be pretty good. And, and then they can have had the satisfaction of doing the more complicated dances that I throw at them at the end. And that satisfaction brings them back. It sounds like you're, you're kind of looking to, to surprise them with a good time. Almost. Yeah. You want that reaction from the certain types of people who are there for whose idea wasn't, it wasn't their idea to be there. Yeah. You want the reaction to be like, that's actually pretty great. Yeah. I was surprised at how great of a time I had. Yeah. And of course that would make you feel proud yeah that's a good thing to feel proud about (laughs) you can feel proud about all sorts of things but that's that must be a lovely feeling yeah and you know and it really it really hits home when someone was like you know someone says like oh i wasn't really sure how this was gonna go but i had a really good time and a similar so i'll be i'll kind of like dive in a little bit more but a similar thing is is wanting to make sure that a square dance feels welcoming to all people so i'm talking about um sort of experience level. Yeah. But then there's demographically, right? Because we have a square dance, which is totally associated with, you know, white people, Southern people, you know, like people. Yeah. yeah, And people have these associations, which would make a lot of people feel like maybe it's not a well, a place where they want to be. Yeah. And so, you know, I've had this interesting trajectory over time of like how I approach gender in square dancing, because at first I was like, People could play whatever part they want. Yeah. But I was still using gendered language right. in my squares. Then my next kind of like level was I'm still going to use gents and ladies, but I started calling them roles. Like you're going to play the gents role or the ladies right. role. And then I tried to eliminate all other gendered language. So I would use gents and ladies, but I wouldn't use boy and girl. Right. You know, I wouldn't use that as part of the pattern. In the instruct. Yeah. Yeah. The pattern being the instruction that you speak during during the dance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Great. exactly. Uh, nor would I ever use those. I never used those terms in, in like actual, like the walkthrough. 
instructions. Right, right, right. So for anyone who's not familiar, like in a square dance, the style I call, the style that Bill calls, we actually start every dance, every individual dance figure with a walkthrough. Like, okay, get set up. Here's your partner. Um, here's how the dance goes. And you just walk through the movements. It takes about five minutes. And then you start the dance and then you call out the moves and everyone follows the calls and then everybody goes through the dance and it's five or 10 minutes of dancing. So the instruction part has always been built in. I've yeah. never, I don't know that I have ever called a dance, even with people who knew what they were doing, where I didn't do a quick walkthrough. Sure. It's just not how this type of dancing works. Anyway, so no gendered language during the walkthrough and I've started to eliminate gendered language in the dance and there's lots of people, like I'm certainly not the only person who's doing this. There's a lot of people who are doing really great work about taking gender out of these social dances. And um, so, for instance, I think in the Contra community, there's a, there's a tradition of using larks and ravens. Sure. Um, because what you do need is you need a right-hand dancing partner and a left-hand dancing yeah. partner for the, for the system to work, right? For the... Comp, uh, choreographies to work yeah yeah and so for whatever reason just because <laughs> even though someone comes up with a perfectly good solution i just will what if for whatever reason want to do something different <laughs> i start using birds and crows birds and crows but what i don't but i only use those if it's a dance where the position doesn't matter yeah so like if i so i don't say birds are on the you know on the right and crows are on the left I'll only use birds and crows in that, and I will still, at this point, use gents and ladies when I need to position people on right and left. Sure. So, you know, that's my own personal journey with it. And I know lots of callers who have gone further and doing really great work in trying to be completely gender-free right. in their calling. Yeah. Uh, I think it's... I mean, I'm... I participate in square dancing as much as I'm able. Uh, I always, I end up doing it more in festivals and stuff, yeah. but, and I've never called. Um, and also I'm a, a non-binary person. So like this does a matter to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, it seems, it seems like a tricky needle to thread because a lot of the patter has the gender built in mm -hmm. and then you have to replace, mm -hmm. if you replace one word, then maybe you have to replace the rhyme. You know, it's yeah. like a, then you just have to pretty quickly have to change everything. And it sounds like people have been working on that for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the the issue of some people really like leaning into the gendered roles and then doing the thing that they're that they're not supposed to be yeah. doing. Heavy air quotes. And there can be fun to be had. Mm -hmm. Uh, by leaning into specifically playing with the gender as opposed to destroying yeah. gender. And I, <laughs> and, well, there's, yeah. and there's a big history of gay and lesbian square dancing clubs. And I'm, I know that there's like a whole, there's a, you know, I am specifically saying gay and lesbian because that was what they were when they sure. started yeah. in like the seventies and eighties. And that was exactly what they were doing. They were like, well, let's play with this highly gendered thing, you know? And even that play for some people, you be the gent, I'll be the lady. Like that's, that's fun for some folks. So, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I always kind of go back and forth between like, you know, is gender a fun thing to play with or a thing to be, <laughs> to be destroyed and eliminated, salt the earth. And, you know, and uh, I understand both of those feelings Yeah, and that puts, uh, I would imagine a lot of pressure on people who are trying to decide how to keep a really special thing, which is yeah. square dancing alive in a way that can 
yeah. include as many people as possible without diluting the essence of why you're all there. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you just, something you said just sparked because you said a special thing, square dancing. And I really do think it is a special thing because it totally, you know, it brings people together. It forces people to engage in a collective activity you know, in a fun and lighthearted way, you're forced to work with a group of people who you may not have totally realized that you were going to dance with when you yeah. got to the dance. You know, you can choose your partner, but you're always dancing with someone else from the square as well. Yeah. And, and I think it is a special man, magical thing. I teach in the schools a lot, oh, or great. at least I used to, and <laughs> we'll see Bring as, Paul the, back. <laughs> as the pandemic comes back. Yeah. When it's safe, but you know, I, uh, you know, people bring me in because they like, you know, they think it's fun. They've had fun at a square dance and they're a teacher and they're like, oh, Paul does this. Let's bring him in. Or they bring it in because there's this kind of like historical echo of square dancing being something you do in school. And so they're like, okay, let's get this guy in. Yeah. And for me, the like hidden curriculum, this is the thing teachers talk about a lot, but the hidden curriculum, hidden curriculum of right. square dancing is respectful touch yeah. And co group cooperation. Yeah. And, um, and so it's as much for me, a hidden curriculum when I do a dances for adults as when I do it for kids. Yeah. It's something that we all need to still be actively learning about because, um, <laughs> culture around cooperation and respectful touch, um, changes and the idea of what those things are. Yeah. But I like the idea of it being a hidden curriculum because it's, so it's it's a secondary benefit to a uh, to experiencing pleasure yeah you know yeah using your body um listening to music yeah exercising um being in a big group of people yeah yeah i have so much more i could say but we should probably do a tune yeah let's do a tune <laughs> and then let's talk about because i know you have a square dancing book and we can yeah. talk about um you know how people can get you to come out and call yeah. a dance or teach a workshop or whatever. And, uh, yeah, hopefully I know that I know there's a Portland concert happening tonight. Um, and I know that people are starting to dance again and, uh, and a lot of people have all sorts of feelings about it, but hopefully we can find a way to make, to get this all going again, yeah. uh, in a way that it's harm reducing as possible. Yeah. But before we do that, uh, what do you want to play? You want to try that Sarah Armstrong's too? Yeah, let's do Sarah Armstrong. I'll, I'll fiddle one. Yeah, it'd be nice to, to do some fiddle. Uh, all right. Let's see if I'm still in tune. Can you hear me? Yeah. Old Reel or Sarah Armstrong's tune.
knowing how soon. <laughs> I can't cut it out now. <laughs> so embarrassed. Would you like to share with the rest of the class? <laughs> yeah, that I left my ringer on, and it turned out to just be like a, uh, what do you call it, spam call? Anyway. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, I love that tune. Thanks for playing that with me. Yeah, my pleasure. It's good to have one of those... Tunes that play a tune that I don't know to keep me honest. <laughs> yeah, good. It's the same. That's what the show is all about yeah. for me. Uh, well, we have time for one more. But before we do that, where do people go to support your music? Whether that I know you have a Patreon. I do have a Patreon. Maybe you could page. speak on that. Yeah. And any, anywhere else people should go to stay up to date. Yeah. If you want to get the Square Dance book that I put together, so I do, I do want to get. I have one for you. So yes, I can't wait. Great. The booklet is available on Bandcamp, and it is a booklet in CD, and it has instructions for how to call dances, and um, and tracks, so that you can. It has five tracks with music for calling along with, or ones that I have put calls on. So you could even practice dancing. If that's what you want, it is available at the Country Dance and Song Society. You can order a physical copy from their website, uh, or go to Bandcamp and you can get it from me. And you can either get a digital copy downloaded, or you can get a physical copy along with access to the digital copy. So that's Bandcamp. Um, Fantastic. And and the physical copy is it's like letter pressed. It's got a letter pressed cover. Lovely. And so it's really pretty. I, that was one of the things. Can I can I take a look at it yeah. like right now yeah. while we're while we're on record, uh, and then I'll give my my real time reactions. Okay. Okay. We're getting out the bag. Oh, it's so gorgeous. This is so. This is yeah. This is lovely. There's a history of connection between letterpress and old time music. These sort of like old styles of technology. And so for that reason, I wanted to. Well, not, I mean, also because it's just beautiful. But I wanted to kind of get that going this is this is great and i love on the back great for schools community <laughs> organizations yeah yeah and and the the cd fits right into into the book yeah. that's really smart that's cool oh this is yeah. this is gorgeous yeah i can't wait to dig into this there, there's a number of things that i've been wanting to dip my toes into uh flat footing and uh square dance calling are, yeah are among them so thank you yeah this is so great you're welcome and then the other thing is Patreon. I do have a Patreon account, um, which I like a lot. Uh, we mentioned that I've been doing some stuff on TikTok. I'm definitely taking a break from that. Even though I have a very tiny community on Patreon, I really appreciate the fact that everything that I send out goes to them. Yeah. And that they won't miss anything because of an algorithm. Yeah. And um, so I do yeah. some Word. banjo tunes. <laughs> yeah. I do banjo tunes. I do some banjo walkthroughs because... I, I'm not the world's best banjo player, but I can teach what I know. <laughs> yeah. And so I do some banjo teaching. And then I have some crankies. That's these sort of like visual arts associated with old time music I've been getting into. And as square dancing comes back, if there's an interest for folks who are on there, I will start posting dances and, you know, and the instruction that I use to teach dances. I'll probably post some of those videos if I get a good response from folks. So if you're yeah. interested in learning to call square dances, Go ahead and jump on my Patreon, and as the dances come back, I will start posting about dance calling as well. Perfect. Yeah. Well, any anything else? Hmm. I don't think so. This has just been... I feel so out of practice playing, and um, 
I've called a few dances lately and I feel out of practice, but it is a real pleasure to get back into it. Yeah. Pleasure to play with you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being willing to do it, to, to follow the format of the show, even <laughs> though we're not talking about tunes today, we're talking about dancing, but we also can't do one of these days. I have a dream and I think I've mentioned this on the show before. It would be to do a video episode of Get Up in the Cool and to have multiple square dance callers. The jam aspect of the show would just be their dance. Yeah. And and they would like do like a walkthrough and one of these days. And if I do that and that happens to be in a place where you <laughs> can get to as well, uh, then you're invited. I'd love to do it. I mean, you've got lots of great callers here in Portland, so you won't be, you won't be you know, having trouble finding good people, but I would love to do it if I can. Yeah. Thanks so much, Paul. This You're is welcome. really lovely. What do you want to do for the final tune? We didn't get this far. I didn't think. No, we hadn't talked about it. Do you have another fiddle tune? We could do Hunting the Buffalo in D, yeah. which is where I like to play it personally. I'm, I'm into it. That's the, okay. that's one. Every time I play it, Hunting the Buffalo in whatever key, I'm like, oh, that's fun, but I've never learned it, but I can always, I can almost always pick my way through it, but that, I always enjoy it. That's a, that's a great space to be in with a tune. It's just like, oh yeah, <laughs> like this is a great one. I don't want to learn it because it, because everyone <laughs> plays certain tunes differently, you know, especially like party tunes, festival tunes. Yeah. Anyway, here it is in D. Okay. Squealish hunting the buffalo. <laughs> you ever did hear...
Go support Paul Silvera on Patreon at patreon.com slash paulsilvera. Then get his albums and his Square Dance Caller instructional booklet, Old Time Dance Party, on his Bandcamp page, paulsilvera.bandcamp.com. Thanks again to CBA Summer Music Camp for sponsoring this episode. That sign-up link, again, is cbacamp.com. You can support Get Up in the Cool by sharing the show with a friend or sharing and liking the video posts on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Help fund this podcast by signing up at patreon.com slash getupinthecool. Order a mask, t-shirt, bag, sticker, or phone case at Get Up in the Cool's merch store. Visit pitchforkbanjo.com for my instructional Clawhammer banjo series or to schedule a lesson with me. Check out my other podcast, Think Outside the Box Set, available in all the same places as Get Up in the Cool. And again, everything I just mentioned is linked in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to Get Up in the Cool.